Welcome to the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Marian Patton. I'm here with Shireen and Abdurrahman, and we're interviewing Peter Lawrence, who's the Senior Curatorial Assistant for the Archive of World Music at Harvard's Loeb Music Library. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Thank you, Marian and Shireen. Today we're going to be discussing Harvard's unique collection of 78 RPM Arabic records. Peter, would you mind telling us a little bit more about this collection, how it came to Harvard, and your work on it? Sure. The Arabic 78 RPM disc collection is actually a couple of collections rolled into one. The first group of records came from a purchase that was made about 15 years ago of about 2,000 ethnic recordings, and about 350 of those were Arabic 78s. Um, a lot of them are really early recordings, like uh, 12-inch discs by Yusuf al-Manyalawi. And the second group has come to the library more recently, um, and that is a donation of records that were collected by Khalil George Gibran, who was a Lebanese-American painter, sculptor, and instrument maker. He started collecting um, these records in the late 1930s and was especially interested in the older records Many of the records had to be uh, especially sought out because when he was shopping for records during his day, he would look towards the more popular performers that were out front. And in fact, he would end up going to the back room sometimes to look for the really old records. So this is really good for us because these are amazing recordings that were really well cared for and kept in very good condition. I'm curious, just for context, at this time in the 1930s when... Khalil would be looking for all of these records. You know, how old was recording of music at all? And what, what would be old in that time? Right. Um, so if he's looking in the 1940s, um, the, the records that he was looking for go back to as early as 1903 was the very first recording expedition um, to Cairo by the Gramophone Company. Um, so many of those records that he found would be the latter part of the first decade of the 20th century into the teens and into the 20s. Could you speak a bit about why these records are 78 RPM as opposed to 45 yeah, sure. or 33, which are more common today? It has to do with looking back towards the hist over the history of recording to the early days. And originally, uh, records were not even flat at all. They were um, more cylindrical. So you might have heard of wax cylinders. Um, recording dates back to 1877, a tinfoil phonograph by Edison, um, which kind of evolved into a wax cylinder phonograph. Um, and then in the late 1880s, a uh, man named Emil Berliner developed a flat disc record. It was more, it was in development, truly, and not commercially marketed at that time. But flat disc records were marketed beginning in the mid-1890s. And they were only recorded on one side in the beginning and the speed was much faster because of the technology. They were called acoustic recordings. And so there was no electricity involved. It involved the performer, the singer, or the instrumentalist stepping up to a very large horn and singing into that horn. And the vibrations from that person's voice or the instrument um, were etched onto what was known as a wax master disc. And so then uh, with flat disc records, you were able to make copies easily and market them commercially from there. And the grooves were actually coarse, too, compared to LPs that we know today, which are 33 and a third speed. So there's been a kind of evolution over time from a really fast speed to a slower speed with more micro groove technology that sounds better. Thank you. I'm curious about what the cultural effect of 
music being recorded was. I've heard a little bit about this in the context of the West, where people are, for the first time, able to, say, hear the voice of someone who's deceased. Suddenly, time is understood a little bit differently, and death is understood a little bit differently, but also sort of more comic stories like performers at venues being sort of threatened with being replaced by a recording <laughs> if they don't, you know, show up on time or they don't perform to the uh, th to their best capability. So I wonder if along with this collection, there's any history of the culture or cultural interpretation of recorded music in the Middle East or in Arabic-speaking lands? In general, um, when recordings were made on cylinder and early flat disc recordings, they were... They were popular music, like military bands and comics and those kinds of performers. And then there was, there was something that happened around 1900 where a handful of engineers started recording opera singers. And they started taking tours, the first tour to Russia, to record the famous opera singers of the day. And then there was a little bit of a turn from the lightness of the popular music performers to, like, maybe this is a more serious endeavor and so the kinds of things that they were recording changed a little bit. It doesn't mean they stopped recording popular performers. So all of this is happening in the U.S. and initially in London because there's a, an engineer who worked for Emil Berliner who had come to the U.K. and was, uh, was involved with starting a new and the, basically the largest record company in history, the Gramophone Company. And at that point, they hadn't really been that far afield, so, but they wanted to. And they didn't want to because they wanted to know what things sounded like. They wanted to open new markets. They were businessmen. And so they, they started setting up these recording tours, first again throughout Europe in different places, recording some folk music too, but then to Russia and then to India. Um, and that was all before the 1903 uh, recording trip to Cairo. But when they first got there, you know, to these new locations, you know, they were basically working on the fly, making recordings in hotel rooms and in old theaters. And they had to, to teach people about the gramophone. You know, they had to let people know that this existed. I mean, now we have all this history behind us and, and the things that you were talking about, about hearing a deceased person's voice. Well, they had never heard any person's voice before, so there was a lot of effort to, to market both the players and the recordings. And in the beginning, all they had were these popular music, military band kind of recordings, but they, they still were interested. There are newspaper ads from the 1890s in Cairo that show ads for these types of recordings, the popular music recordings. But then they figured out, rightly, that they need to record the local music. Um, there were no independent companies at that time, so the major companies like um, Gramophone and Columbia would record the music in Cairo, send all the material back, make the records in London, and then send the material, uh, the records back to sell. And so that's when people started hearing their own music recorded. Um, and that's when uh, the importance of someone like Yusuf al-Manyalawi comes into focus because he had actually been recorded in 1905 and the quality of the recordings was not that great. It, it was interesting that it was a local uh, Egyptian label that was pressed by a German company, but the quality wasn't that good, so Gramophone's uh, company's quality was quite good, so they were able to make over 60 records, double-sided, of Yusuf Manulawi, and they, 
their extraordinary documents of the singing of that time. He was 65 to 70 years old when they were making this recording. I believe he died in 1911, so this was the very end of his career in life. And so that's when culturally people started like hearing their own music on record um, and realizing how valuable that was. One of the first labels emerge in Egypt or Lebanon after the introduction of recording technologies. So Gramophone Company was the first in 1903, but then very soon a German company named Odeon moved in very quickly because they wanted to take advantage of this new market. And they made a lot of recordings, and a lot of the recordings that I can show you from this collection today are on that Odeon label as well as Gramophone Company too. And so those were sort of the major companies. There had been a division of another company called Victor here in the U.S., and so um, they were not one of the early ones into Egypt. But um, Odeon and Gramophone Company, and most significantly, the first indie label that um, appeared in the Middle East, the Bidafon label, which has a, um, an amazing story where it was five cousins of the Bida family who um, started this label around 1906 in Beirut. And one of the cousins was uh, Michelle Bida was in Berlin. And so he actually worked out, because they didn't have the, the resources and the pressing plants and all of that, to make the records, he, uh, Michelle Bida in Berlin, worked out a deal with a company called Lirafon. And he actually worked this out so that they would press the records and send them back. But basically, it was an indie record operation. It had nothing to do with these big multinational companies. And that had a profound effect because, I mean, there were, there were, the major companies went for the biggest names and the established singers. But there were also many singers who liked the idea of recording for a local Egyptian, or pardon me, a local Lebanese company. And so that had a profound effect. Plus, their records were really great. One of the cousins was actually a performer for our Jalabaida. I have a beautiful record over here with uh, his recordings and many, many in the collection. So that, I think, was a significant event in the history of recording in the Middle East, that, that an indie label could become so successful like that in the face of all this major competition. Great. I think we should play some of the music. We, we have some records from the Betaphone, right? Yes, we do. So the record that we have a digital copy of to play today is by one of the members of the Baida family, the one who is a performer, uh, Farjala Baida. This record was recorded around 1910 and has an introduction. Um, I can't make out the first part, but uh, as is common sometimes in uh, records of the period, you can hear him say his name before the performance starts. So this is Faraj Abida on Abida record from around 1910. <laughs> Thank you. 
a little bit more about the physicality of some of these discs that are in the collection that you're going to play today. We'll put some pictures up on the website and people can see them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the earliest discs were seven inches, the earliest flat discs. They contained only about two minutes of music. And so 10-inch records came into being because they held a little more music, about three minutes per side. And then 12-inch discs um, held around four to five minutes. So we don't have any of the very earliest. Those were the 1903 discs in Cairo that were 7-inch. But we have 10-inch and 12-inch discs that are part of the collection. And there are a lot of things about the disc. There's a lot of information you can glean about the recordings. And so I'll just take, for instance, one of these, which is a very early gramophone company recording, this is a recording by Ibrahim Abani, uh, recorded in Cairo, and it is a single-sided disc. Um, and so early on in the technology, there were single-sided discs. The first flat disc did not have music on both sides. In retrospect, we know that would have been a good idea, but it's not something they thought of immediately. So they filled this disc up with a very beautiful etching that is the, the logo, the trademark angel logo of the record company. If you take a look at this disc closely, you can see that on the, each disc has a label. There were no record sleeves, per se, as we know from LP days, but they had beautiful labels which uh, held information about the record company, um, information about the performer, and often the title, and then a series of different numbers. Mind you, this is the largest record company at the time. So they actually um, had the process down early on because they were already making a lot of records by the time this one had come out. But you can see that there is a number also etched into the, this is called the run-out area of the groove for um, people listening. It's the end of the grooves before you get to the label. There's a lot of information that is contained inside of that area. Um, there's something called a matrix number which basically identifies this particular performance. And it's a very important number when you're doing research on the records. So that, for instance, this recording might have been issued later by the same company with a different catalog number than you see here, which is GC12754. 
So that's that's one of the things that we can um, tell from from looking at the record itself. In a couple of cases, we have records that are are not only the surface is in bad shape, but they have chips and sometimes are even cracked. Um, I've got another example, which maybe we can photo, that has a chip, but it's not affecting the groove, so we were actually able to make a really nice digital copy of that. Another thing that you will notice, um, and I mentioned the timings before, so the, in the early days of recording, you know, the two-minute record for a popular song worked okay, but when people started recording opera singers and art music, and especially in um, Arab music repertoire, pieces are longer, and so they needed more space than the technology could accommodate. So um, it actually worked both ways. The, the technology ended up affecting the music, and uh, the length of musical pieces had to be accommodated by the records themselves. So what you'll find is that you'll see a piece performed by a performer, and it will be on both sides of the disc, and there'll be a part one and a part two. If it happened to be a really long piece, it might go to four sides as well, too. And from what I've read about the recording of the day, it was very disconcerting to some performers because these are through performed pieces, but that's not the way you have to approach it when you're in a recording situation. So they would record the first side and the person would be in the whatever the flow was of the recording, but they would have to stop, wait for all the engineers to set up new masters. And so um, I have read that not every performer was enthralled with this way of working um, and maybe chose, maybe some chose not to record actually that way. But so you'll have many longer pieces that span multiple sides on the recordings um, of the period and that we have many different examples of here. I have a Bida recording here also um, that has Something uh, interesting also etched into the run-out area of the grooves. It's, it's actually the name of the recording engineer. His name was Ivor Holmes, um, and he worked for the German Learfund Company at the time. And the initials IH are stamped along with all the numbers into the wax. So that was his signature. This is my record, um, which is kind of interesting, too. A lot of other physical details um, as well you can look at, including some beautiful sleeves that we'll also hopefully have some photos of. So the next thing that we're going to hear is one of the records that I described before as being chipped, um, but the chip does not affect the grooves. The performer's name is Ahmed Elagami, um, and you can actually hear him reciting his name at the beginning, and this is on the German favorite label. And this is our break. I hope you enjoy the music. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
the particular collection we have today at Harvard and whether it makes sense to think of any genres or themes that are particularly strong. I know you mentioned earlier that part of the collection comes from Khalil George Gibran's donation and his specific interests in, in this music and whether that manifests itself in terms of particular genres or, or categories of music that we have. Sure. The the collection covers a lot of different musical forms. Uh, they include Al-Mawal and Taksim and certain kinds of sung poems. And he, I could tell that he was interested in the forms because he, he generally gathered a lot of those together um, and put them in the same binder. And so I, I think probably that most forms, including Quranic recitations, are included in that collection. It's hard to know exactly what he specifically was interested in, but I know that he was also very, you know, interested in the Boston community as well, too. I'm not sure if I mentioned Hudson Street, which is where a large Arab-speaking population lived in Boston at the time. And there were also music clubs, uh, nightclubs that performed the music. Might have been Greek music sometimes, too, but there was one named Club Zara, as well. Um, and it's possible, I know that he repaired instruments for musicians so that it's possible that instrument that musicians who played at those clubs would, uh, would be known to him as well. So I'm actually, as part of this project, which initially the goal was just to get these records cataloged and make them accessible to people, was also an interest in um, finding out more about that era of Boston music history and that community so that we could provide a lot of added detail, a little richer detail for the context for these records too. Do we know anything more about that Hudson Street scene? I, I have wanted to go down there and see what exists right there right now, um, but I haven't done that yet. So that, that part is yet to be. One interesting point though, is that there was someone named G.S. Malouf who lived at 93A on Hudson Street, who owned some of these records originally because people would often have a little sticker and they would put their name on there and indicate that it was it belonged to them. But there were other kinds of stickers sort of getting back to the physical items as well. And I'm, I'm reminded of that because of the name Malouf. Um, Malouf was also a New York-based label for Arab music that was active, you know, during the... 20s and 30s, as far as I know. And so this is a this is a well-known name um, in Arab-American music of this period. So I'm curious about this person who owned the records. These records were available at dealers in New York and in Boston. I haven't seen a dealer sticker that I can recall from Boston, but many from New York. There's another record label in New York called Maksud, um, many of which are represented in the collection too, and they're quite Beautiful 12-inch records. The labels are stunning on those as well. But he also had a dealership as well. So the records that he sold were added. A sticker had been added that said Maksud um, as well. And so that says a little bit more about the business of the day too as well. Because um, one of the things that the Vida family did in Beirut when they started their label was they opened a record store in downtown Beirut in 1907. Um, and so they sold records. Um, they probably had players there. Um, they were making records. It w it's, it's a real, I, I envision it as a real community of performers and of um, new listeners because the technology was so new um, and the people who made it all happen from the business side of things. 
Do we have any other records from this Moksud collection you just mentioned that we could play? Um, yes, we have one Moksud recording, and this is Andrew Makna and a very spectacular violinist named uh, Naim Karakand. Um, there's been some recent writing about him on the web, but he was an amazing violinist. Um, and so he is also featured on this, and we can play this recording. As I recall, the quality of this one suffers a little bit in the beginning, but that will be a good example of um, how the quality can affect the play. What has it been like for you personally to work on these collections? How have you felt about the music, about being exposed to traditions from 100, 100 years ago? My history is working a lot with recordings um, from a lot of different periods and in recent years, particularly early ethnic recordings. So the first collection was just amazing. And, you know, these records from the first decade and then to listen to these these voices and um, the quality of the recordings, in particular with Yusuf Al-Manyalawi and Abdel El-Hilmi, uh, the singer who I like very much. Um, some of those recordings have been reissued and so I've listened to them that way as well. But it's very important because, I mean, in the context of our work at Harvard here, this was what we had called a hidden collection, something that we had had in our collections for a long time, but no one really knew about it because none of these had been cataloged. And so uh, we started looking for people who might be able to help us to do the cataloging in Arabic. Some of the records and the ones from the Arab American communities had English versions of titles and performers as well, but some of the Odeons and some of the early other labels, Bidafons, um, had just the Arabic. So we really needed that help, and we did not have the expertise here in the library to do that. So personally, for me, um, it was really exciting to, to finally find a wonderful person in Farah Zara who did the cataloging for so many of these uh, records and all of the records in the Gibran collection. And we're not just talking about this, this cataloging and there's really, really rich, good cataloging. And that's what we were aiming for. So that in the library world, there's something called parallel titles. And so Farah was able to write the Arabic version of the title as she saw it on the label. But there are different rules in the library community about transliterating Arabic, and there are lots of different ways that you can do that, as you all probably know. But there are, there are very specific rules about how you do that within the library communities and here at Harvard. So we have really good records that have full Arabic titles, 
full Arabic versions of performers and also lots of information about the disc. So then we try to de to determine maybe styles or what country this is fr from. And so we'll have subject headings that I'll say, for instance, a particular record is from Morocco. The music performed is from Morocco. A lot of times it's very hard to get that information. I mentioned the documentation for a lot of companies is not available. So we're really going on what's on the record label. So my goal, I mean, being a librarian and also having worked with recordings for so many years and especially seeing the value of these early ones is let's make the best cataloging records we can make um, and let's have scanned pictures of the labels, which include the, the run out part of the groove that have all the numbers. Because in many cases, it's not just the matrix number, but there are lots of other numbers that can help researchers to learn about the performance that's on that record. And then finally, where we can, we're going to make digital copies and also put those up inside the, the bib record for the record itself. So that way you'll be able to look at the label, you'll be able to see someone's kind of expert transcription of all the valuable information that's on that record, and then you'll be able to listen to it too. So, so that's been the really exciting part for me, and it, believe me, it did not all happen at one time. But we're, we're now through the cataloging part. We just had an amazing blog post by Farah in our local uh, music library blog. So we're, we're now going to really set into the business of digitizing a lot of these and making them all available through the catalog that way. What's been one of the most surprising discoveries in your work on this collection and just sort of cataloging and listening to all this wonderful music? I think I should probably not be surprised, but I was to find that there was a kind of a pirate label in New York that showed up in this collection, and you might not have expected it to do so because it's called the Opera Disc Company. And they did actually record a lot of, or issue a lot of operatic performers, but there's a, a quite a bit of Arab music on this label as well, too. And when we started cataloging this one, I started noticing things about the performance that were interesting and about the record itself. And it turns out um, this was run by a fellow in New York. I don't remember his name, but he had worked out some sort of arrangement um, with, I think, the German branch of the gramophone company after World War I. And somehow... He was act in New York actually issuing records alongside the bonafide companies. Um, and what I noticed, that there was a lot physically about this record that could tell that story. And so when you start looking at the numbers on this disc, first of all, you notice that the label is really close to the grooves, the end of the grooves. That's a little bit of a clue there. But then you actually notice that the label is on top of the numbers, and it's on top of the matrix number. And so when we were cataloging this and looking at the performer and looking at the matrix number, we started using a lot of the great web resources that are out there and discovered that this is actually a gramophone company recording that was issued as a pirate disc by the Opera Disc Company. And so you can follow that whole trail by looking at the disc and looking at the numbers. Peter, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on to the Autumn History Podcast with us today. It's been really wonderful listening to the treasures of this collection. Thank you, Miriam. It's been my pleasure, and I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk about all these great records. For those of you listening at home, I just wanted to remind you to please check out the website, www.autumnhistorypodcast.com, 
where we'll have a full bibliography of everything mentioned today, including some artwork, some photographs, so you can see some of the, the matrix codes. We'll also post a link to Farah's article, which goes into some more detail about the history behind this collection. But before we conclude, we wanted to play one final track from this marvelous collection. And the last track that we'll be listening to is a performer named Muhyiddin Efendi Buyun, who is Syrian. This is on uh, the Gramophone record label, and it is Umri Alaik, and it's two parts. It was recorded in um, 1912. Actually, it was recorded on March 3rd, 1912. That's the kind of detail we can get um, when we have the records left from the record company. So please enjoy. Oh, boring. 